On February 14th, 2022, I was sitting at my computer with a pair of headphones on, participating in Sacramento State's anti-racism and inclusive convocation. Between keynote speakers, a poet comes on. I turned away from the screen for a moment, but was still listening. The poet begins to address the educators in the room, already building a cadence to his statements, but then pauses when he says, Hi, my name's Andrew, and I'm a recovering racist. This is Beyond Jay, and I'm your host, Philip Allstott. I, too, am a recovering racist. And to really dive into what that means, I'm joined by the poet himself. My name is Andrew Defire, a.k.a. the Gorilla Poet Laureate, a.k.a. the Hoodie God, a.k.a. Spitting Quarantino, a.k.a. I wear my sunglasses indoors at night because my eyes are as sensitive as my heart is, y'all. Current Sacramento Poet Laureate till 2024. I've never had such a robust introduction before. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a rapper. <laughs> I think your poem came as a surprise to some of the attendees, and I speak as one of those individuals. And for me, it was a cool opportunity to write something new. You know, I don't think that was what they expected, but for me, it was definitely like, oh, I've got a real stage here. Andrew says that the piece was written specifically for Sacramento State. Because I'm in this community. I've been in this community for 12 years. I've had experiences with legendary, amazing educators here. I also know some really problematic educators on campus too. So it was like, let's address these things given the platform. We're talking about your poem and I was watching Convocation and it blindsided me. I was here to learn maybe how I could take some of the topics of Convocation and bring them to this podcast. So I was ears wide open. I was watching eyes wide open to the Zoom. Uh, and then you came on and you had this poem. To be honest, I had looked away from the screen for a minute, but I still had my headphones on. I was listening. You kind of paused. You said, Hi, my name's Andrew, and I'm a recovering racist. And I lost it. I just like, I don't know where it came from, somewhere really deep inside of me. I just cried uncontrollably. That's a hard thing to say on the microphone when I know people are going to be listening, but I did. And the only thing I could do is, is find my wife in that moment. Thankfully, we were both working from home on the same day. And I just hugged her and I cried on her for a minute and she wanted to know why. And she was like, well, you know, that's beautiful that that happened. But then some fear sunk in because I know that I'm gonna have to address this now. Mm. So I went, I went back to work. I was like, I don't know who this guy is but I feel like I should get him on the microphone and we should talk about this. And being such a wordsmith, I'm gonna lean on you mm, for this mm. conversation. What does this mean to be a recovering racist? Man, so when I was working on this piece, as just as a, as a white creative, first mm. off, I keep a lot of people around me from marginalized communities and my stuff gets filtered. And I'll, I'll just start with this. I've been an activist for you know, 11, 12 years, but I still make all kinds of mistakes. I work at the Soul Collective Arts and Cultural Center. I'm dedicated to this work. I still make dumb mistakes, glaring, obvious mistakes. No matter how much love that I have and no matter how committed I am to anti-racism, it comes with blind spots in creating that piece. You know, what do you, what do you say 
what do I say that hasn't been said already? And what do I say as a white dude? As a white dude, I think I have to address the white folks. Yes. You know, I almost started that poem off with, all right, if you are a person of color in this room right now, go make yourself a snack. Because it is, I do feel like it's on us um, to fix racism. We created this problem. Our ancestors created this problem. So it's on us to fix it. And part of the way that we do that is by admitting where it shows up in our own lives and in our own bloodstreams. And it does show up for all of us. And so writing to the white folks and writing about being a recovering racist, because we all are, that's the thing. If you are white in America, you are a recovering racist. Mm -hmm. There's this whole, like, don't call me a racist. I'm not a racist, but you are. It's like systemically and structurally built into us as white folks in America. So it's about not being so offended Mm-hmm. by that word and realizing like this exists in all of us so part of it you know that that poem starts out with I'm recovering racist and I saw the looks change on some faces as soon as I said it but you have to admit yeah. in order to change but just this idea that you you can own that and that it doesn't make you this inherent evil Nazi to say yo I have a problem and I have this this thing that shows up in my blood because of my privilege, because I live in this country, because of history. And nothing will be fixed if it's not addressed. Absolutely. You're going to ignore it or you're going to deny it, then you're not going to work on it at all. Absolutely. If you've ever uh, had an an alcoholic or a drug addict that you knew, they'll tell you the first step is admittance. And it's the same thing with, with any anything really that's really true that we're trying to recover from a very close friend of mine who is Japanese said we are all recovering racist Mm. this is not a white problem Mm. me myself speaking for my Japanese friend am racist against white people and I don't want to be this is a person in my life who has influenced me probably more than any single individual on loving all people Mm. I mean, that mm. is his goal in mm. life is to to connect people, to break down those walls of prejudice, no matter what the difference is. Well, you, you, you just said it, and I want to just make sure we draw a clear distinction because where people of color can't be racist, they can be prejudiced. Okay. Prejudice is okay. very like that. Anyone can have that. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to explain that racism is a structural Thing. As much as someone of color doesn't trust or like or associate with white people, mm-hmm. they can't make my life harder. There's not systems in place that they're in charge of that make my life harder. They can't redline my neighborhood because they're not in power. White folks have that power systemically. Mm-hmm. We got to get into the nuance and we really got to break some of these concepts down because there's this thing with white folks that like, it's like the woke Olympics. Once you get to it, then you just have these talking points and you you stop really being empathetic towards other white folks who are trying to learn. And so a lot of times you'll just hear this talking point that reverse racism isn't real. And you can beat someone in the head with that mm-hmm. and they won't understand it until you really start breaking down the ways that systemic racism exists. There's a difference between prejudice and racism in the ways that the, the, the races are held down and have been held down in this country because they didn't have that systemic power. 
I'm really glad that you brought that up because recently I heard for the first time that part of the definition of racism includes a power differential. It was redefined by Webster's Dictionary in okay. 2020 because a young black woman said, I am tired of telling people about racism and white folks going to the dictionary to be like, well, what it actually means is... And it didn't have that structural component. So it wasn't an actual definition of it. We're working with these words and, and, and these new definitions and really pushing that, which I'm, I'm so excited to see. There was something else you said that I wanted to pick up on, and that was that you almost just wanted to address the white people in the room and excuse anybody else who wanted to go make themselves a snack. But I feel like... I want everybody in the room for the conversation because we're talking about a group of individuals who have been hurt and are in pain. And I think it's important to hear that they have an ally mm. because I think that we all live in our bubble and I surround myself with those particular allies and it it blows my mind to see the numbers on how few and far between we are. Mm. So I'm like, really? There's that few white people who would consider themselves black sympathizers. Well, and 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 we gonna go one step further too because allies is a that's a real basic word. I prefer accomplices. I'm not I'm not a allied to get you free. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get free, I'm going to be an accomplice. If you're catching a charge for getting free, then I'm going to catch a charge too because I'm helping you get free. I'm here for everybody getting free. And I think it's real easy for white folks to fall into like, I'm an ally, which means I don't say the N-word or the F-word. Yo, that is not what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to dismantle these systems of control. Mm -hmm. And it takes a little more than allyship. I, I do think... To your point, I did hear from a lot, a lot of black and brown folks who were like, yo, thank you. And that's always good for me. Uh, I just know that there's emotional labor that mm -hmm. we ask black and brown folks to do a lot. And what I mean by this is when a lot of folks in 2020 really got their eyes opened up to some of the systemic things and how bad it was, a lot of white folks went to their black friends mm -hmm. to be like, hey, tell me how to be a better ally how to be a better a better friend so now you're asking black and brown people to do all this work to teach right. you some things that like <clears throat> yo we we got the education to know about how to do this there are whole institutions there are whole programs there are anti-racism trainings you can go to so i just try to be really aware and there okay. that's not to say that everybody doesn't want to do it there are folks who want to do that work yeah it's about not asking the folks who don't want to to relive their trauma rehash their trauma and teach you well, especially that week following the George Floyd attack. You know, I had a conversation with somebody who I'm close with, a black man, and it's interesting that we're talking about word selection because what I wanted to do was to ask, well, what can I do as a white man to, to, be, to be better for you? And I didn't say it that way. I just let him know that I'm, I'm here and I'm thinking about you. You're on my heart and I just want you to know that, that I'm right here, right next to you. And I didn't ask any questions about what I could do, but 
that wasn't my intention. Well, and, and I don't want to come down really hard on folks who are just getting here, too. There, there's just, you know, these are things that I've learned after years of being in this this work. So I'm not coming down on, on the white folks that just got here in 2020. I was really hyped to see it. I was really glad to see so many of us out there. I think we do need to organize. We do need to centralize. And we do need to understand our role in some of this. For me, I've been out on those protest lines since I was 18 years old. And what some of y'all don't understand is that your job as a white person is to put your body in between the black and brown family and the police. That's what we're there to do. Mm-hmm. Our job is not to yell at the cops. When black and brown people curse out cops, it's, it's therapeutic. We're not in the same situation as them. Mm-hmm. So in fact, a lot of times when we're yelling at the cops and we're provoking the police, you know who that gets taken out on? is the yeah. black and brown fam. It's not us that pay those consequences. Mm. So I don't want to call it like protest etiquette, <laughs> but yeah. if you're white and in the movement, there's a role for you. There are ways, you know, we have this privilege. We talk about this privilege a lot. There are a lot of ways to use that privilege mm-hmm. out on the front lines in whatever field that you're in, whether you're in the educational field, whether you're out there marching, whether you're a professional business person here in the city, there are ways to get active and to use your privilege. Andrew spends a lot of time in communities of color, and for that reason is often asked to participate whenever there's a conversation about equity. He will always take the invitation, but we'll try to pass it along. That day, something will come up, and I'll send somebody else into the meeting that should be in the meeting. It's little things like that, that that we can do as white folks to put people in the building. I was once in a meeting at the city about this new thing that they wanted to do. And then we wanted to start talking about equity. And I looked around, there were two black people in a room full of 50 people. Mm. I said, y'all want to talk about what? We can't have that conversation. So make sure that people are in the room. If you've got keys, hold the door open. It's, there's, there's a lot of ways. You don't have to be out on the front lines waving signs and taking rubber bullets. There's a lot of, a lot of young people who are ready to do that. But if you are in a position with any kind of power, you are to open doors. In the, the poem before that one, I talk about being <clears throat> reconciled. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about revolution all the time. We want a revolution. Revolutions happen every day. We all revolving around the sun every day. But how do we reconcile this? Because when I leave, when I leave this planet, I want to know that I did everything I could mm-hmm. for all of my human family to be free. Yeah, I want to dig into this a little bit more, and I appreciate you making the distinction between the different things that you can do, because the last thing I want is for somebody to listen to this and think, well, I'm not that guy that's going to go get violent. Right. And I've been struggling with this for the past few weeks because, and, and longer, as a campus, Sacramento State, comes out and say, we're not just against, we're not just for not being racist. We want to be anti-racist. Okay, well, that's different. And I'm committed to that. What does that mean? Mm. If I come out and I make a public declaration, Philip Allstott is anti-racism. What am I committing myself to? Because that's more than a belief that implies there's going to be an act. Mm. Mm. And if I see injustice... I have dedicated myself to stand up against that injustice. I need to understand what that means. Right. Because right now I feel like I'm in the fog of war. 
I am trying to prepare myself for that moment when I see an opportunity to stand up and do something. I don't know what that's going to look like yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I would, I would like to talk about that other than being on the picket line and being willing to physically get between the police officer and a black person. What else is on that? Oh, what, yeah. What's that range look like to you? Oh, yeah. So, you know, one of the first things that I always tell people is that equity isn't a conversation to have. Equity is the beginning of every conversation. So when you're as a as a host, mm-hmm. right, yeah. what's the makeup of the guests that you have on here? Mm-hmm. Are we making sure that everybody's represented and everybody's got a voice in here? Are we touching issues that affect everybody? So I think that's that's one of the, the first places and then i think education really like educating ourselves you know we weren't taught all of the ways that racism showed up there were a couple things that i mentioned in that poem Mm -hmm. i said the library of alexandria was in tulsa and we're never taught about it Mm -hmm. how many of y'all know what the library of alexandria is you know rome you you know what they had right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we don't know about tulsa i don't know about the tulsa massacre and all of the black wealth that was just demolished that was an all-out war and we're not taught about that in our schools right there are all of these seneca village being under central park central park was built over black excellence there are a lot of these cases and points in history that we don't even know about so we're not even ready to have the conversations because we don't even have the right facts that's why it's important at an educational level i get how folks made it through public school Without learning these things, how do we have grown adults with master's degrees who don't know about this country's history and what they've done to black folks? Mm. How do we make sure that we're stopping the stereotypes, that we're smashing stereotypes when we see them and in our own lives? You know, one thing that I tell people a lot, it's real easy for me to tell how anti-racist you are because I'll just ask you when the last time you had a person of color over for dinner was. <laughs> it's real simple, y'all. Love people. Love people extra. I love this idea of sharing the table. Mm. In fact, I look back and I think about sharing the table with our neighbors. We lived in a very diverse neighborhood but that didn't mean that we were over at the neighbor's house all the time. We were seldomly interacting. (laughs) So why don't we just open up our doors, put out some tables, you make some food, I make some food, and let's feed each other. And here I am going into this conversation with you, hoping to learn how I could be anti-racist, how I can approach my (laughs) recovering racism And I've been doing it for some time. Yeah. You know, and I continue to do it. And in fact, now it has not become an event. It's become a daily way of life for us. Right. And that's what we do for our community. And that's that's how that's how it really stops. That's how racism really ends. You've said it multiple times, and I think it comes through in how you approach the topic is just show people love. And to me, that's the bigger topic than anti-racism, because if your only goal is the anti-racism, well, your lack of love is going to reveal itself in some other way, too. I didn't come here to pacify hate. I came here to activate love. Mm, Thank you.
This was a tough episode to walk into. More than any other conversation that I've had as a podcast host, I had to take some time preparing for this one. Because I'm not at the end of a journey here. I'm at the beginning of one. I'm here to declare that I'm anti-racism. But I'm also trying to figure out what that means, and I'm trying to build a comfort where before there was a wall. This has been Beyond Jay from Sacramento State, a podcast committed to bringing thoughtful conversation to the Sacramento region. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Philip Allstott. Please stick around just a few minutes longer for the entirety of Andrew's poem. So to the educators here, we must make room for what we don't know and be open to the lessons that this generation is teaching us to unlearn, especially if you look like me. We have a lot of blind spots and you have to check them all constantly. Just when you think you found them all, you get into another accident and find another one. You know how I know? Hi, my name's Andrew and I'm a recovering racist. I've been fighting it all my life, but sometimes it still pops up in places. And I saw, soon as I said it, that some looks changed on some faces like, we know it, but why would you say it? Well, they say admitting's the first step to changing, so we gotta talk. Especially if you look like me. Especially if your ancestors agreed on being white as the price to be free. Good morning, America. You're still a burial ground, no matter how beautiful. They say eat your vegetables, but there's still slavery in the soil. Who forged the swords you're swinging and composed the songs you're singing? The library of Alexandria was in Tulsa and were never taught about it. Like Seneca Village under Central Park. Yeah, I have friends with master's degrees that just said, huh? And that's part of the problem. What we've been teaching is what we've been taught, and we don't take time to unlearn, so we trap other people before we can see that we're caught. It's passive perpetuation instead of intentional progression of thought. I know it's a lot, but before you change lanes, you've got to check your blind spots, whether the roots feeding the leaves or the rain trickles down from the top. When the tree stops being healthy, the whole thing needs to be chopped. We need to be honest. We say that we feeding the people, we gonna need crops. So we gotta nourish what's growing by showing it love and keep uprooting everything not. This means it's cool I can go on your IG and might see you at marches, but at Thanksgiving dinner, are you too scared to speak up to your pops? It's more than performative. What you think this is, Congress? Do I look like Nancy Pelosi and Kente Cloth? If I was, Maya would have gotten a hundred instead of a quarter and we'd all be stacking Angelou's from night until the morning. Listen, statistics show the best way for white allies to wage war against racism is by taking long enough looks in the mirror to understand the flaws in our own vision and stop addressing experiences as monolithic. Ask ourselves, are we building for or building with? There's a big difference. Disparities are a symptom of a rigged system being efficient. When it's your privilege or your practice, where is your commitment? 
Thanks, y'all. My name is Andrew Defy. Never forget how big you are and how many of us are there with you. Thank <sighs> you.